book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> We've spent, uh, I believe, uh, about six messages already just on the first 14 verses. Uh, we said the first 14 verses is the longest sentence in the Bible. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, markings there, the punctuation, are not in the, uh, were not in the uh, original Greek uh, text, and they've been added to help uh, the flow of, uh, of what's being said there. But uh, actually, this is one sentence from uh, verse 1 to verse 14. Well, we're going to move ahead to uh, verse 15 tonight. And we're going to look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Paul's prayer uh, for the Ephesians. And uh, we have seen Paul already describe how richly blessed uh, we are in Christ in the doxology of verses 1 through 14 in this first chapter. Uh, Paul now proceeds to re- reveal what sort of things he's uh, been praying, on, uh, praying for on behalf of these Ephesian Christians in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul does the same thing in the epistles of uh, Philippians and Colossians. Uh, you just uh, look at uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. You look at Colossians chapter uh, 1, verse 9 through 12. But in noticing these, these prayers, I find it helpful to remember Paul is writing by inspiration. These aren't nece- not necessarily what Paul was, was thinking and that, that uh, God just kind of uh, used what Paul's thoughts were. No, uh, God inspired these words. Uh, they were given to Paul to, uh, to, to write down, and that is the things mentioned here were not just Paul's desire for his readers, although it was his desire, but it's the desire of God as well. And in most cases, what concerns uh, are expressed here in these prayers is just as applicable to us as they were to the original recipients of the epistles. Uh, With that thought in mind, uh, that is, Paul's prayer is God's desire for you and me as well tonight, I want to take a good close look at this prayer uh, this evening. But before we look at the prayer, uh, we see a recognition of their faith and love in verse 15. In verse 15, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. Uh, and he uh, makes mention of his unceasing thankfulness for them in verse 16. Since I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And the, uh, the Ephesian church was noted for its faith and love. Uh, this love was not just a motto on a bumper sticker uh, kind of love. It was a genuine love that was expressed by these saints, and it was based on their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This was a church at its highest. Over in the book of Revelation, of course, uh, when we looked at the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation, the church at Ephesus uh, represents a church at its very best uh, because of their faith and their love, and uh, Paul thanks God for the Ephesians. And it seems that the circumstances that motivate us sometimes to pray most often is trouble uh, or sickness or distress or a crisis. You know, um, we say, you know, I've got this, this problem, so I better pray about it. Well, it's good to pray about problems. Uh, We see someone that's sick. It's good to pray for the sick. We need to pray for the sick. 
well, I've got this crisis I'm facing. We need to pray during a time of crisis, but that's not the only time we need to pray. We need to pray uh, when there's, things are going well. As, uh, and uh, we pray for people who are sick and we, uh, who may be suffering. We pray for people who are in trouble and we need, uh, they need some kind of help, whether it's financial or spiritual or psychological. Uh, we may even pray for a church. Uh, maybe there's a church that seems no have no love for the brethren. Uh, it's made uh, to be filled with gossip and Bible stu- study there at that church is not, no longer a top priority. Well, we should pray for those things and that take place in the lives of our loved ones and friends and acquaintances. But isn't it sad that there are so many negative things that we always seem to motivate us to pray? Uh, perhaps that is about the only time we pray, when something is wrong or troublesome. And aside from a quick prayer at mealtime, maybe, uh, we do little praying. I was struck by this statement. I came across this straight statement uh, that I heard. It really kind of hit me between the eyes. Proud people don't pray. Proud people don't pray. I don't need to pray. I, I got everything under control. That's pride. That's when, when we say, you know, I don't need God. I, that means you're not praying. Proud people don't pray. Now, that is really something that's quite obvious, but in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, what does it say? If my people, which are called by my name, uh, shall, will humble themselves and do what? Pray. Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You know, humbling ourselves and praying go together. Uh, proud people don't pray. Oh, they may say prayers, and you and I can say prayers, but not really be praying. Prayers may never, never get past the ceiling tiles. We can say prayers, but uh, when, when we don't pray, we're saying, you know, I don't need God. But the point here is that so much of the time, the only time we do pray is when we need something or we're in trouble. Otherwise, I'm doing just fine. There's no need to bother God. And if you ever notice that Paul was often motivated by good things, when you hear something good about another believer, are you motivated to say, Oh, dear God, thank you for this brother or this sister and the way that you're using them. I trust those are some of the things that you do thank God for, the way God is using someone Uh, When you hear about another Bible-believing church where God is blessing the preacher and the word of God is going out, do you get down on your knees and thank God for it? Listen, isn't it true that too often when we pray, it's like turning uh, to a grocery list, turning in a grocery list to God, and we say, I want this, I want that, I want the other thing. Lord, will you do this? Will you do that? You know what? God is not a messenger boy. Why don't we just thank him sometimes? Uh, so I think we need to have more than one Thanksgiving service. We may be, you know, it's not the pie, okay? Uh, we need to have more praise and pie services. But it's not the pie. We need to have more praise services. Okay? I heard of uh, uh, one preacher who thought prayer meetings at his church were getting stale and dull and small that he tried something new. Uh, They decided to have a prayer meeting where they would do nothing but praise God and thank Him. 
the whole prayer meeting. They wouldn't ask God for anything. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't you, know, you know, pray for any, uh, you know, it's not that we don't pray for the sick. It's not that we don't pray for the, those who need to be saved. But here was a prayer meeting that all they did was thank God and praise God for what he was doing. Now, they had a good prayer meeting that night. Uh, nobody asked God for anything. They just thanked him for what he had done. And Paul says, when he heard the good news and the wonderful reports about the Ephesian church, he said, I cease not to give thanks for you. And we don't often think of Paul as an outstanding man of prayer. Uh, We could put him at the top of the list, probably, as a great missionary. Uh, We can't think of any greater example of an apostle than Paul. And if we were to make a a list of the ten greatest preachers, you would probably put Paul at the very top, number one, if not very close to the top. He was a great preacher. He was a great teacher. Uh, He was a great example of a good pastor. And according to Luke, Paul wept with the believers at Ephesus when he left them. He loved them and they loved him. Uh, And how, but how about being a representative of a man of great prayer? We don't really think of Paul as a man of great prayer. Unless, of course, you've studied some of his prayers and you th- if you actually look at what he's praying about. You know, we think of Moses as a great intercessor. Moses on the top of the mountain, praying for the people of Israel. Uh, we think of David with his psalms and his confession of his awful sin. We think of Elijah, who stood alone before the altar that was drenched with water at M- Mount Carmel. Uh, We think of Daniel, who opened up his window toward Jerusalem and prayed, even though he lived in a hostile land under a hostile power. And then we think of the Lord Jesus as a man of prayer, so much so that one of his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. But did you know that Paul was a great man of prayer? I think a good study for us sometime would be to go through the scriptures and make a list of all the prayers by the Apostle Paul. You'll find that Paul was a great man of prayer. Uh, these, there are two prayers in this epistle. We're looking here tonight at the first one. And having set before us the great blessings that come from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, for those who become a part of his family, Paul falls on his knees and he begins to pray. And the other prayer will be at the end of chapter 3. But these two prayers indicate that Paul had a concern as a child of God for other believers. You know, one of the ways one can judge whether or not a person is a child of God is by his prayer life. How much does he feel a dependence upon God? If he has a need, he'll go to God in prayer for himself. He'll go to God in intercession for others. Uh, We've seen the the motive for uh, Paul's prayer, and it was good news. Uh, And now uh, we'll see that he does not pray for material things. Jason, you might want to show the people in that are coming in right now. Uh, We'll see that he does not just pray for material things, but spiritual blessings. And so Paul states in his prayers his concern for the Ephesians. Now, first of all, he says that they may know God, that they may know God. Um, Look at verse 17. 
Verse 17, that, God, that the God of our Father, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the knowledge of Him. I think there's some things that we need to see here about a couple of things that Paul says about knowing God. Now, last Sunday morning, uh, we talked about uh, what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 where he said that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the suffering, uh, uh, the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable to his death. Paul was interested in, in having people know God, and that's what his interest is here. And notice, first of all, the importance of knowing God. The importance of knowing God. Uh, it's important for three reasons. Uh, it's more important than human wisdom or glory or might. We find in Jeremiah 9, uh, verse 23 and 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness, in the earth and in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And so what Jeremiah is saying there is it's prayer or knowing God is more important than human wisdom. It's more important than glory. It's more important than might. Secondly, it's more important uh, because it is eternal life. John 17, 3, it says, And this is life eternal, that ye, they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, failure to know God will lead to, lead to everlasting destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9 says, And to you who are troubled, Rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from the heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking, uh, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, of course, we're speaking here of a knowledge that comes through a close and personal association, not just a casual awareness. Many people say, oh yeah, I know God. Yeah, I think there's a God. I mean, I'm, I hope there's a God, or maybe there's a God. Well, that's kind of casual. I believe in Jesus. Yes, he was a good man. He's a good teacher. That's kind of casual. But see, Paul said that they might know him, that they might have a knowledge of him. And it's important. But also notice that Paul says about knowing God, the source. The source. He says here, he talks about a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, Paul could have reference here to either the Holy Spirit himself or maybe a gift that the Holy Spirit gives. Uh, you notice the word spirit here is not capitalized. So we're not quite... Uh, uh, we could go either way with that as far as, as whether that refers to the Holy Spirit or uh, a spirit of a, a spiritual gift. 
In either case, it likely refers to the process that's still going on in the first century, where the spirit of truth was guiding the apostles and the early Christians into all truth. John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, and whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. 1 John 2 and verse 20 says, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now today we have a full and final revelation in the pages of God's words here before us. And thank God you can come to church and you can bring your Bibles, you can open them and we can read God's complete revelation. We can learn the truth about God. A little later on in chapter 3, in verse 3, it says, How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So the question is, Tonight, do you know God? Many people know about God. But it's God's will that we come to know Him. And through the Word of God, as we have it today, you can allow the spirit of wisdom and revelation give you the saving knowledge of God Himself. Now, we observe that Paul's concern for the Ephesian Christians included their eyes being opened. Notice, secondly, that they may know the hope of God's calling. They may know the hope of God's calling. Look at verse 18. It says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is to the saints. This word translated as understanding is a word for mind. Your mind. And so Paul says that he prays for the eyes of their minds to be brightened, enlightened. The idea is that having light on our minds regarding the understanding of the things of God. You can see better when the light's on, right? (laughs) Uh, You get up at night and uh, you don't have a light, you stumble over things. Somebody said the most important light in the house is that little light that shines in the hallway on your way from your bed to the bathroom at night, right? Uh, That's an important light. But uh, just think of having uh, the light revealing the truth of God's uh, uh, word to us. The problem with many Christians is that the light is on, but nobody's home. And uh, specifically, Paul prays that they might have enlightened understanding of the hope of his calling. Now, notice the hope of this calling. First of all, it's in Christ. The calling, according through the, the preaching of the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is calling us into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that ye may walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. You know, we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says. But ye are a chosen 
generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you may show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so the hope of God's calling is in Christ. But we notice here it's also Paul's desire. And remember, Paul's desire is the same as God's desire because this is God speaking through Paul. But Paul says here, the word, he uses the word hope. That means desire with expectation. What is the expectant desire of this calling by God? Paul has already revealed some of this hope back in verses 4 and 5. It was the hope to be holy and without blame. Uh, to be adopted as sons. And Paul's going to reveal more about that later in this epistle, in chapter 2. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see a lot more of that. But in this way, Paul is helping to fulfill his own prayer by writing of this epistle. Now, do we appreciate the hope of God's calling upon our lives? You say, well, I haven't been called. We've all been called. If we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. Uh, we're all to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a calling to be an ambassador for, for Christ, a representative for him uh, in the world. Again, it's through the revealed word of God, like this epistle to the Ephesians, that we're able to have our eyes enlightened. There's no reason for us to be ignorant of this wonderful hope. In addition uh, to the knowing uh, the hope of his calling, Paul says, thirdly, that they may know the riches of God's inheritance. Now, we talked about that inheritance when we looked at uh, verses um, uh, 5 and, uh, and verses 11 uh, through 14. But here in chapter uh, 1 and verse 18, Paul has already made reference uh, here in verse 18 to the fact that we are predestinated to the adoption of his sons, verse 5, the fact that we've obtained an inheritance, verse 11, and the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, verse 14. And he's going to write more concerning our inheritance even later on, speaking of the exceeding riches of God's grace in the ages to come. Uh, chapter 2, uh, speaking of how the Gentiles can be fellow heirs, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and also in chapter 3. But again, we see how Paul, by writing this letter, is attempting to help answer his own prayer for the Ephesians. You hear what I said? He's answering his own prayer. You know, sometimes we just need to realize that we can answer our own prayers sometimes. Not that we're going to do something, not that we're going to save somebody, but if we're going to put feet to our prayers... If we're going to pray for revival, then we need to be uh, talking to people about the meetings, talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we need to be answering those prayers in that sense. Uh, and Paul's answering his own prayer here uh, by giving, writing this letter to these, these Christians in, in Ephesus. And there's one more thing that Paul wanted the Ephesians, uh, of the Ephesians, if the way, he, and the, the way he elaborates is an indication of its importance, then Paul, uh, more than all else, prayed that they may know the power of God. That goes back to our message in Philippians 3.10. But here in verse 19 and 20, he says this, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to 
usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, uh, which, is, uh, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now I want you to notice here there's two particular words uh, translated as power here in verse 19. First of all, there's an exceedingly, exceeding great power. Exceedingly great and it's shown toward those who believe. That is, he says, to, uh, to usward who believe. Now the word here for power is the word dunamis, which we get our word dynamite from. And it speaks of a general sense of unleashed energy or power. And so it's an exceeding great power. But he not only stops there, but he goes on to talk about a mighty power. Uh, The word here is a different word, but it means with great strength. You say, what's more powerful than dynamite? Well, there is something apparently, uh, as far as God's concerned, it's that which is of great strength, a mighty power. And so the spiritual power available to us comes from an infinite strength of our Savior. This power is in accordance with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, that's what Paul's saying back in Philippians 3.10, that I might know the power of his resurrection. Uh, it's the same power that seated him at the right hand of God in heavenly places when he ascended into heaven. And we see that also back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. But this same power also exalted Christ, verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. The lordship and even the deity of Christ are clearly implied here. I think you should know there are four words here. Uh, for uh, both human as well as spiritual authority. There's the word principality, there's the word power, there's the word might, and there's the word dominion. And implied is not only human government, but also Satan's evil empire. And yet Jesus Christ has exalted far above all power and authority in the universe. This is true in this world, or this age, But it's also true in the ages to come. He is over all. And the reason is simple. Jesus, as part, as God, part of the Godhead, is over all. Look at verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave to him to be the head of all things to the church. Now, here we have a quote from Psalm 8 and verse 6. And it's referenced in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27. We could probably also say that there's somewhat of a reference of this in Genesis 3.15, where Jesus would someday crush Satan's head with his heel. And we also see that God gave him to be head of all things to the church. This church does not belong to me. This church doesn't belong to any one of this, uh, the people in this congregation. This church belongs to Christ. This is Christ's church. He's the head of the church and all aspects of the church. So the word church here is the word ekklesia, which means called out assembly. The term came from the ancient Greek city-states, which was 
uh, they were pure democracies, and each adult citizen was a voting member. And when the city business was to be done, the ecclesia, the call was called together, and then they voted upon whatever they were going to vote upon. And this word, although initially was a political word, was the word the Holy Spirit chose to apply to that, what we have today is called the church, the local church. Now, historically, it's always referred to a local visible assembly. I talked a little about that this morning. And I'm not going to go into a further in-depth study of that area tonight. But I do want us to keep in mind, whenever Paul was speaking of the church here in Ephesus, he's writing to a local, visible church. And when he uses that term, that is what he means. Even though many Bible teachers and commentaries will try to tell you otherwise. Now notice one more thing here in verse 23. In verse 23. He says, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. This church is the body of Christ in this location. Now, reference is not to his physical body, to be sure, but rather it's a body of believers in each local church. The local church is the fullness of him in any given community or neighborhood. It is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so the local church is the potential fullness of him who can and at his direction Fill all believers in all places. But getting back to the power, let me just preview, uh, uh, give you a preview of that which is to come in our study. In, uh, it could be said that this power is available to us who believe. That's what he said here. To usward who believe. Now Paul gives an example in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We won't examine that in detail. We'll leave that for another uh, evening. But briefly, it speaks of how we, are, uh, we were dead in our trespasses in the first three verses. And then we were made alive, verse 4 and 5. And then we were raised up in verse 6. That is, in Christ, we who ha- were spiritually dead have been made spiritually alive. Colossians 2 12 and 13 says, Ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now this may not sound as impressive as being raised from the dead physically. You know, if someone is uh, dead in a grave or in a tomb like Jesus was, and then he's raised physically. That's exciting. And we may think, well, this spiritual raising from the dead isn't as, as exciting, not as impressive. But you know, it cannot happen with that same sort of divine power. The same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses to raise you and me from, from de- being dead in our trespasses and sins. It can't happen without some, the same sort of divine power. As Jesus said when he raised the paralytic, which is easier? To raise the sick and the dead or to forgive sins? And to make the spiritually dead spiritually alive? Both require divine power. So that's going to be in chapter 2. But then in, he speaks of its source in chapter 3 and verse 16. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says... 
that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. It's through God's spirit in the inner man that we are strengthened with might. And just as we were born again by the Spirit, according to John chapter 3, remember Nicodemus came to uh, Jesus, and Jesus uh, said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a, a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. And in First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. In that same way, so are we strengthened by the Spirit in our daily battles against sin. Romans eight twelve. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And then... Paul speaks of the greatness in chapter 3 in verse 20. Um, in, in verse 20, he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. He, that power comes from God. He is able. Uh, his ability is exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that ability, according to the power that works in us, Again, going back to verse 16, through his spirit in the inner man. And finally, Paul charges the Ephesians to stand strong in the power in Ephesians chapter 6. By putting on the armor of God. Why do we need the armor of God? Because we're in a battle. We're in a battle against the devil and his forces. And dare we fight this battle dependent upon our own strength, we're going to fail every time. The armor of God, of course, is described in chapter 6, and, and uh, we'll get there. So that's kind of a preview of that, but it's all talking about the power of God. Now, it appears that Paul followed that saying, pray as though it all depends upon God, but work as though it all depends upon you. Pray as though it all depends upon God, but work as though it all depends upon you. For while he prayed for the Ephesians that they may know God himself, the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the power of God, Paul would begin to, would continue to take upon himself of course, with the aid of inspiration, of course, to write these things in this epistle. And how is our knowledge of God, the hope of His calling, and the, His riches, and His power? Certainly it is God's will that we became, become increased in our understanding, in our appreciation, in the application of these blessings. And with the help of God's Word, especially like in a book like this, and here in Ephesians, we can grow in all these things. I hope that's your desire tonight, to grow in the Lord. But you know what? Before you can grow, there has to be life. And if you're here without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no life. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. And then you can grow in the Lord and you can receive uh, uh, the, the power that is offered to you 
uh, as Paul is talking about. And so I trust that each one of you know Jesus Christ is your Savior tonight. If you don't, uh, let us uh, uh, speak with you. Or, uh, you know, we trust that God the Holy Spirit will work in your heart. And then we who know Christ need to realize that, you know, we need to pray not just for ourselves, not just for the needs, not just for the, 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 the list, but we need to pray that God would work in our own lives as well as the lives of those around us and in our church. And I trust that will be what God impresses upon our hearts tonight as we've looked at this passage. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven.